The Water Values Podcast, Session 48. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm David McGimsey. Thanks for joining me. And thanks to Kelsey Cody, the PhD student who rated and reviewed the podcast and gave us a five-star rating. Really appreciate it, Kelsey Cody. And for those of you who haven't yet rated or reviewed the podcast, I'd love it if you could please give us a rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or whatever podcast directory you're using to listen to the podcast. Thanks so very much. Well, on today's show, Ann Tart, the Director of Corporate Partnerships for Protect the Flows, joins us and discusses the recent study Protect the Flows commissioned that quantifies the economic impact of the Colorado River on states in the Colorado River Basin. The study results will open your eyes to the importance of the Colorado River to the economic well-being not only of those states in the southwestern U.S. and the Colorado River Basin, but to the entire United States. Let me just say this. The study found that 1 in 12 jobs in the United States relies upon the Colorado River. So listen on for more about Protect the Flows and the results of the study it commissioned. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Ann, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate your time. Uh, Ann, if you could, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure. Thanks for having me, David. I've been working on environmental sustainability and sort of economic development issues for the past 20 years, I would say. Um, So before it became super trendy and popular to do sustainability (laughs) work. Um, And, uh, you know, I have a master's degree in environmental studies. It's very interdisciplinary. And um, I, I worked for a number of years on Capitol Hill doing environmental policy and then worked at the community level doing um, sustainable community economic development. And um, so I've been doing that for a while. And then when I moved to California from the East Coast, I really became much more aware of water issues because they're so critical here in this state. And we're so dependent on imported water, particularly in San Diego County where I live. So that's, that's kind of how I got interested as well as the fact that I'm a surfer um, from Southern, in Southern California, and there's a big link between water quality issues and water availability issues, and so it's a, a personal interest for me as well. Terrific. Well, what are you, what are you doing now with, uh, with this interest in, in water? So I work uh, primarily with businesses or associations of businesses um, uh, to help advance their corporate social responsibility efforts or their corporate sustainability efforts. And one piece of that is water. And that's kind of my expertise. I've been, uh, before I was doing this, I was working for a sustainability think tank that was focused on water in in California. So um, I work with them to try to figure out how they can reduce their water footprints, um, you know, get more efficient with their water and, and, you know, get engaged with water policy. Sure. And is there a certain channel you're going through? I mean, are you associated with an organization or anything like that? that- right. right. Yeah. So I, um, I, I part-time do this for a group called Protect the Flows. I'm the director of corporate partnerships there. And, um, and, and I do work separately from them as well. But they're, they're the ones that actually um, uh, commissioned the study that I think we're going to talk about a little bit more here. Sure. Uh, can you tell us a little about, you know, 
protect the flows and who they are, what they do, that kind of thing? Yes, absolutely. So Protect the Flows is a coalition of businesses that we have about 1,200 members right now and then many more who, um, who aren't officially members but who kind of connect to our network. And what, what businesses um, really are is they're a voice, a business voice for the protection of the Colorado River and for water conservation and stewardship in the Colorado River Basin. So they're, they're really seeking to, as businesses, to, um, to work to maintain a healthy and flowing Colorado River because they know that their businesses and the communities in which they operate depend heavily on, on the river. So how do they go about making sure that the Colorado River is protected? Well, some of it is through direct action that they take within their own businesses. Um, like I said, trying to reduce their own water use and footprint and conserve water and or educate their customers about, about water issues. Um, and some of it is getting really engaged in policy issues. They go and um, testify at community meetings or you know, provide um, evidence to, to decision makers and policy makers how important the river is and how their livelihoods depend on it. So they, they're kind of tackling the issue from both you know, direct action internally as well as getting engaged um, with, with policy and decision makers. Okay, and, and what's the geographic footprint of your member organizations? Great question. Um, you know, so the core of our members, I would say, are from the Colorado River Basin, and, and we, we started about three to four years ago, so it's a fairly young organization still, and, and the core membership, the initial membership, was really from the, from the upper, what we call the upper basin states, which are, you know, um, Colorado, um, Utah, um, so those those where the Colorado River is really big and, and flows through, and we have a lot of um, recreation-oriented members from those from those areas. Uh, but as the membership has expanded, we've really gained uh, lots of different types of companies from everywhere from Southern California to um, to Arizona, New Mexico, etc. And um, and so we have so the core of the membership is really from those seven basin states and and Southern California. But we do have a lot of companies that are more national and some even global in scale, but they have they potentially operate facilities in, in the Colorado River Basin, um, or they, they get some of their products um, maybe related to agriculture, for example, and so, um, you know, uh, inputs for their product are, are grown in the Colorado River Basin. They may not have facilities here, but they, you know, they're working with farmers and agricultural entities that grow things here. And so they are looking to make sure that they have the least impact they can in their supply chain. And so they're engaged with us as well um, on that level. Okay. And it sounds like it's a pretty diverse um, member base that you've got. You mentioned the recreation and it sounded like, you know, there was uh, the supply chain that at least included ag, uh, kind of what's what's the you know essentially the the diversity within the membership right <clears throat> yes we do we have um, everything from um, food companies like um, white wave silk it's a company that produces soy milk and, and almond milk and things like that um, we have we have retail companies like sports authority is a member we have um, companies that do manufacturing small light manufacturing we have light um, biotech and science companies engaged at the last uh, business of water summit that we convened in Las Vegas last summer, we had 
um, uh, um, casinos, I mean, MGM and, and Caesars Entertainment engaged. We had major beverage industries like um, New Belgium Brewery in Colorado, as well as Coke and Pepsi have been engaged with us. So it's really across the gamut and across different sectors. We have real estate agents, all kinds of different groups. Okay, now you alluded to a study earlier, and that's the Arizona State University study that Protect the Flows commissioned. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? How did, how did Protect the Flows come to commission a study, and what was the basis for the study, and what does the study entail? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that Protect the Flows does is, is we, we do research that helps to make the economic case for the river. So a few years ago, we commissioned a study focused solely on the recreation economy. As I mentioned, our core members were recreation-oriented. And we had some economists about, uh, do some evaluation of that, and we found that that was a $26 billion economy dependent on the river. And that study has been very useful and very powerful for us to make our case with decision-makers um, around that recreation piece. So when I came on board about a year and a half ago, and part of my task was to recruit and diversify more diversified membership, I realized, geez, there's a you know um, industries across the board that are dependent. So we need to one be able to better make the case to them that their that their businesses and economies in which they're operating are dependent on the river, but also again to policymakers that this is a pretty significant resource. We didn't know what kind of numbers we'd find. We knew it would be big, but um, we wanted to be able to quantify in dollars and cents just how important the river was to the um, Southwest. So that's that's really the genesis of the study. Um, and so far, we're, we're finding pretty good reaction to it. <laughs> well, that's good. Now, I, I agree with you completely that quantitative uh, analysis is much more uh important, or at least it, it brings home that impact a lot better than qualitative analysis does. Um, how did you go about when you decided that you wanted to commission a study about on the economic impacts of the Colorado River? How did you go? You know, what was the process there? How did you go about selecting who is going to to lead the study and things like that? Yes, good question. So I, I just would, you know, did a, a lot of research um, looking into economists. We, we knew we wanted to work with economists somewhere in the region, in, in the Seven Basin um, State region. And so I just did some research of different economists who have experience uh, valuing natural resources. This is a kind of a niche in the economic, um, you know, academic sector. And so I, I found a number of them, and I, I interviewed the various um, economists and researchers and asked them what their approach would be and, you know, got a sense of what other projects they had done and uh, found one who was, I mean, many, many of them were, were great, but found one who was um, particularly impressive to me because he had actually just finished a very similar study for the state of Arizona. He was the economist's base at Arizona State University. And um, he had done a very similar study for the Central Arizona Project, which is which is the project in Arizona that imports all the water from the Colorado River. So he had already had the experience of kind of using this tool and doing it for the state of Arizona. And so it wasn't it was a pretty easy um, thing for him to take that and, and build it out towards the, um, the, the broader basin region. OK, could you describe the uh, the framework and the parameters of the study? I know that one of the things. Uh, that's assumed is that there's no Colorado river water for one calendar year. And it also assumes that, that the river water, that there's no substitute for that water. Uh, so could you talk about the, a little about the, the framework 
and the parameters uh, you set up when commissioning the study? Sure. Well, let me just preface this with I am not a research economist. <laughs> so, that makes two of us. <laughs> yeah, my, my understanding is, you know, kind of at the layperson level. But, um, uh, you know, the there is a very typical model that economists use when they do this kind of um, economic modeling. It's called the implant model. And he, uh, Professor James at ASU told me that's what he planned to use. Um, and we did talk about the parameters. I mean, we knew we wanted a number in terms of gross state product, which is kind of the the summary of all the value of the goods and products produced in a in a state, um, similar to you might have heard gross domestic product, the GDP uh, for the nation. We knew we wanted a big number for the whole region, as well as looking at it in terms of jobs, because you know what do decision makers listen to when they're listening to these kind of things? Is how many jobs are going to be won or lost? Um, within a project. And um, so we asked them for those two pieces and we asked for also a state by state analysis because we we sometimes work within a state with state policymakers. So we wanted to make sure we had numbers that, you know, we could specifically talk about in Colorado or, or Arizona, for example. So those were the broad parameters. We talked about how um, how he was going to get this number, and he basically told me, you know, in order to do this, we have to essentially assume that there is no river. If we want to get the total value that you know the river brings to these economies, we have to, for one year, assume there is no river available. And their model, if they if they take that as an input, if they take water as an input out of their model, the model can calculate what would happen, what would change to the economic um, situation or to the number of jobs if water was not available for all the, um, I think it's 50 different economic sectors that, that this model looks at. So it's, it's pretty extensive. So it, even though we knew that, you know, the next question people usually ask is, well, the river isn't going to completely dry up. It's, it's very unlikely that, you know, the river is going to go away 100%. So, you're, you know, the study isn't, it's not likely. We knew that, but we, but we wanted him to do that just so we could get the complete picture of what it's really worth to the region. And then on top of that, we asked him, okay, after you have that number, can you, can you do some kind of extrapolating calculating what would happen if there was, say, a 10% decline in the river, you know, amount of water available from the river, or a 20%. So he did uh, from, uh, from 10 to, I think, 75%. He kind of did a, a number of scenarios. What we don't do in the study, I want to make clear, is we are not making any sort of um, statement or analysis about, oh, this is more likely, it's likely to be 10% or it's likely to be 20%. In fact, there are documents and studies out there um, by different entities that say what their estimates are for reduction in river water over the next, say, 20 to 50 years due to climate change and other factors, population growth. But we we are not you know, we're not going there with a study. We know there's likely to be a decline because the, the, the models predict a hotter, drier southwest. But um, it could be 10, it could be 20. We're not sure. But the point is, <laughs> even in, you know, even in those scenarios, we're looking at um, trillions of dollars and, and um, you know, millions of jobs being lost as, as if the river levels decline. Okay, so, so you've kind of alluded to it here, but can you take, take us through some of the findings in the study? region, um, if the water from the river was not available, we would see about a 1.4 trillion, with a T, 
um, economic loss. That's that's the gross state product economic loss for the whole region. About $870 billion in labor income would be lost and about 16 million jobs if the river t were to disappear. So that those are the number of jobs and the uh, gross state product and, and labor income that are dependent on the river every year. Okay, so that's worst case scenario. Um, what what if you, you know, look at the various uh, percentage reductions in flows, you know, what the, what how does that uh, impact the Right. Let's take 20%. I think uh, if there's a 20% reduction we're talking about 3.2 million jobs and about 290 billion in um, gross state product. Okay. That, that's across the whole basin. What we don't have is those numbers for each state because uh, the reality is the way the uh, water from the river gets allocated, it's 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 a very complex law of how it gets allocated. <laughs> so we, we, we actually couldn't we would we would have to know how that would change based on the law of the river and, and it was too difficult for us to calculate in this level of study. Sure. So so given that you can't really break it down by state on those on those uh, reduced flows, uh, do you have any sense of what states are going to get hit harder uh, than others based on an absolute and a per capita basis? Yes. So we do know, for example, when you look at gross state product, annual gross state product, the hardest hit uh, state would be Nevada. About 87%, almost 90% of their economic activity would be lost if the river disappeared. So every state that we looked at has at least a 50% potential loss, and then um, Nevada's is the highest at 87%. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, is that? Uh, I, I assume Las Vegas would be the hardest hit. That's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. It's pretty much Southern Nevada, which is Las Vegas, and um, so that's pretty scary for them. And and that's one reason we have to say, you know, um, Las Vegas is actually. <laughs> I know a lot of people have criticisms of, of you know <laughs> putting that the city in the desert, but given um, it, it, given its situation, it has done a fantastic job at um, reusing water. I think it's virtually like 95 to 98 percent of all the water they get from the river is reused multiple times. It's treated and reused over and over. So they're pretty efficient with what they have. Um, so we do have to give them some credit for for taking those steps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Even in Colorado, you're, it, 50, it would have a 50 percent impact, you know, given that you know, the river starts essentially in the middle of the state, um, you know, how, how is it that the impact would, you know, cause it's only affecting, well, I shouldn't say that, um, the river runs in the Western part of the state, but the impacts would be still 50% of the state's, uh, gross domestic product. I, you know, I think Colorado is actually 60%. It's a little oh. bit higher. I think uh, Utah was 50%, and then in Colorado and Arizona are 60%. California is 55%. So, um, yeah, so it's it's pretty significant still. And, um, you know, that's partly because the um, – trying to think how to explain this. But, <laughs> uh, you know, the urban areas are, are the ones that generate – the, the bulk of the significant, um, the economic value for the state, right? So, um, 
you know, it's even though, so, so the river is running through and providing water for, you know, Denver, for example, right? It's pretty exactly. Significant. And exactly. that's where a lot of the economic value in the state and the labor income and wages are being generated. So it, so the model it looks at that and, and shows that kind of value. Right. And, and I very clumsily was trying to, to, to get into that point that even though the river's only in the western half of the state, a lot of the water is diverted through, you know, Trans Mountain diversions over here to Denver. I mean, we, we get reminded constantly that half of the water that we're using on what we call the Front Range here um, actually comes from the the western slope. So That's right. That's right. Yeah. So uh, what about the economic sectors? I mean, did the study break it down into um, – you know, the various sectors and how hard they're going to be hit? Yes, it did. So for every state, we have a list of um, which sectors are going to be most hardest hit, and we have it for the region as a whole. Um, so I can the, the top five sectors, we just kind of pulled them out to, um, to make it easier to talk about them, but the top five sectors that would be impacted in the region include real estate and rental, um, the healthcare industry, finance and insurance, um, then there's a category that the model calls professional, scientific, and technical. So that includes like legal professions and technology companies, um, and then retail trade. So those are the top five. And it's, I mean, it's just amazing that that water is going to hit, you know, for example, you know, housing and rentals so hard. I mean, is there, did the study provide any, kind of any background as to why those industries were going to get hit so hard? Well, again, yeah, it's it is kind of hard to imagine because you don't you don't you think about an office building or something and you don't think oh that's a huge water user necessarily. But first of all, it's you know um, water is used in every business sector, right? So to for cooling processes, for cleaning, for just you know sinks, toilets, everything, right? So it is used in some places where we don't even see it or think about think about it. But I think the the really the the most important piece is is that. Those are the sectors, you know, as the West has been urbanizing um, and become transitioned really from more of an agricultural economy to a service economy, it's these sectors that are the ones that are generating the most economic value. So um, so that's that's why they're showing up as a top of the list. Um, but you could, let's take an example maybe to try to explain it more. You know, agriculture is, is clearly important in the West. It, um, it doesn't show up on this top five list, but we all see it. We know it uses, it uses a fair amount of water. Um, but if that sector, if the agricultural sector um, experiences losses because of lack of water, it's going to have a ripple effect through the whole economy. For example, um, you know, if people aren't planting crops and they're not able to farm, they're not going to be buying tractors or they're not going to be buying fertilizer or they're not going to be buying insurance, the same kind of insurance um, that they might or, or the need for financial services. So those services will be impacted by, every, you know, with every other sector that does maybe use more water on a daily basis than, than they do. Um, they'll be impacted. So I, I guess, I don't know if that helps explain a little bit, but that's, that's sort of what's yeah. going on there. Yeah, I think that's a great example. I think that illustrates it very well. Uh, well, you know, you we talked uh, kind of when we got into this about uh, what your perception, you know, you knew that you knew that it was going to have an economic impact qualitatively, but quantitatively, you, you know, that's what you wanted to find out. And so 
how did how did you and and those within Protect the Flows react to the findings? I mean, were they more or less than what you thought? I mean, was, were there any surprises in there? I'd say it's more than what we thought. I mean, again, we had the 26 billion recreation economy, so I had that number, and it's that's a significant number in itself. But I I don't think I saw this getting over a trillion dollars. I that was pretty shocking, and the number of jobs was staggering. To me, um, one in every 12 jobs in the United States dependent on the Colorado River. That's just amazing, and this and the whole the whole number, the 1.4 trillion, is about the size of Australia's economy. So it's it's massive uh, to give people perspective. Um, so we are both encouraged because again, it's our job to help make the case that we want to conserve this resource and protect it. Um, but it's also sobering. Right uh, to to feel this dependent in this these arid regions on on this source of water and um, you know it really I think it's kind of a wake up call to to um, to just really drive the discussion around what else can we be doing to um, to to use water more efficiently more wisely to allocate the resource wisely um, I think there's already a lot of good things being done. A lot of times you'll hear some folks say, well, we've already done all we can to conserve, but I know for a fact I'm out there working with businesses every day. There's still more, many more businesses that could do more. And even the ones that have done a lot are still finding ways to wring water out of their, out of their processes and their supply chains. So there's, you know, that sector has a lot more it can do. And there, and other sectors as well, people at home, you know, residences, um, there's, there's just a lot more to be done. So I think, you know, the reaction has been positive. The Some of our members really were very eager to speak out when, when we showed them the results of the study. We had AT&T, which you don't necessarily think of as focused on, on water, right? It's a technology company. We had them wanting to um, showcase what they had done to reduce their water footprint in water-stressed regions where they operate. And um, we had other, other companies, uh, Caesars Entertainment, California American Water, all wanting to say, hey, this just says we thought it was important and now it really is and we're and we're willing to even share our best practices and our case studies with you to to help other companies um, figure out how to do more with with less water sure so that's your member reaction what about externally what about you know just just generally have you have you had enough time to really gauge what kind of the 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 non-protective flows reaction is Right. Um, well, it, you know, the study's been out for about a week now, so we, we've certainly seen a lot of interest from the media, dozens of stories uh, already, which is which is good. So I think that we're, you know, we're, we're just in the beginning process of getting rolling out the study. We've had some positive reaction from some policymakers already saying, you know, this is great to put a number on it. You know, it's helping us make the case. Um, that we need to conserve water, some of the water providers, for example. And um, we, you, we've we been talking a lot with the Western Governors Association, and they were recently quoted in a story saying, you know, this is important, and it shows why all of us in the West need to work together to provide solutions. And that's one of our key messages, too, is that the study points out every single state is, you know, the, the river is generating value for every state. And so as potential shortages become more imminent, you know, if the drought continues. Um, I think one of our points and, and other decision makers too are, is that, you know, we need to work together across state boundaries to um, to solve these problems. Right, right. So that begs the question, what's next? You know, how, how are you going to leverage these findings and 
and further protect the flow's mission and and get that next you know take accomplish taking that next step right um well we are definitely don't want it to be sitting on a shelf study somewhere so um we are planning to to roll it out more like i said we're working with the, the western governors associations they're holding a series of drought forums throughout the west um, at which we're try, you know, trying to be present and, and, and highlight these numbers. We are, um, we'll probably do some sort of trip to DC with some of our members to, to talk about what are some um, policy responses at the federal level in terms of efficiency um, in different sectors that, that we could advance. We are um, we're working at the state and local levels as well to, to try to get these numbers out there and then provide solutions. I mean, the, the, the good news is, is that there are solutions that exist out there already. Um, we just need to do more of them and we need to incentivize um, and incentivize the business sector to do more. So, so um, we're, we're just gonna continue to, to push those solutions and, and try to get the word out about how important the river is to both our economy as well as our quality of life in the region. Very well put, Anne. I really appreciate your time. You've been absolutely fantastic today. Um, and for those folks who want to find out a little more about you and Protect the Flows, where can they go to find that information? Uh, and I think it'd also be good to let them know where they can where they can find the study, too. Absolutely, yes. So the study can be found on Protect the Flows website, which is www.protectflows.com. And um, Protect the Flows is also on Facebook and Twitter, so you can find links to it there. Um, I personally have a Twitter account at Antart and um, also on LinkedIn, but you can also find me through the Protect the Flows website as well. Great. And, and uh, your, uh, your last name, just so everyone knows, is spelled T-A-R-T-R-E, right? That's right, so. yes. Terrific. <laughs> That's quite all right. Uh, well, Anne, again, you've been absolutely fantastic. Really appreciate your time uh, walking us through this study and kind of the important findings that it, that it uh, brings to light. So uh, just again, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Well, appreciate your interest, David. And thanks. Thanks again. Oh, you bet. Bye. That was my conversation with Anne Tart of Protect the Flows, a 1200 member strong organization looking to protect the Colorado River. She was great coming on the podcast, especially on such a short time frame after the study was released. The study had only been out about a week when we did the interview. So rather than fire off a bunch of takeaways concerning the interview, I'm going to do one global takeaway for this interview. Um, and that's the magnitude of the economic value supported by the Colorado River, $1.4 trillion. As Ann indicated, that's the size of Australia's GNP. It's a number that should cause businesses, even if they aren't located in the Colorado River Basin, to raise their antenna about water as a business risk. Just see the Water Values Podcast Session 10 with Will Sarney, where we talked a lot about water as a business risk. You know, if businesses are paying attention, they'll be looking at their supply chain to see if the supplies they need to perform their business are at risk from decreased flows in the Colorado River. An obvious example of this uh, would be restaurants and food, uh, food producers who rely on produce irrigated with Colorado River water. Likewise, if a business's customers are dependent on the Colorado River, you better be aware of that. Let's say you're Orvis, for example, based in the Northeast, but you sell a lot of fly fishing gear to consumers in the Colorado River Basin. That's a big risk to them. And I think that's why Protect the Flows is seeing membership by companies that aren't necessarily based in the Colorado River, River Basin, but that they do business there. The Colorado River is a huge asset to the United States, and we in the U.S., not just the Colorado River Basin, need to ensure that we don't economically strangle ourselves by overusing its water. 
It's been well documented that the Colorado River is over-allocated. That's a problem to which we all need to be concerned about finding a solution. Well, you can check the show notes out for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 48. Leave a comment on the show notes or email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993, and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And don't forget to rate and please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast directories. And please don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.